flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The Bible paints a picture of the good life. The Bible casts a vision of what the good life that we all want actually is. And the picture that the Bible paints of the good life is a picture of a life lived to glorify God, to reflect God by doing his will. So the psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Or Psalm 119 that Scott read from before begins by saying, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. So the Bible paints this picture of of the blessed one, the, the one who is living the good life. And the good life is a life of glorifying God by doing his will, living and walking according to his ways. But in our sinfulness, we seek the good life apart from God and apart from his ways. The truth of scripture, though, is that while we look for that good life outside of God, ultimately we are running into a dead end that will never satisfy. So God says this in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is the one who has an everlasting spring of life-giving water, yet we look for the good life of satisfaction and sustenance outside of him in something that is ultimately dried up and can hold no water. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for us to get back to the good life that God intended for us. He made a way for us to be forgiven of all the ways we have lived against God's ways, and that we've broken God's law. And he has given us power to live the good life of following him and walking in his ways that God called us to. So Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. So among the many things that Jesus accomplished for us at the cross, when we trust in him, he, he brings us back to a way of living in this good life, this blessed life that the Bible portrays. But the good life, as Jesus defines it, is not always what we would think of as the good life. So for instance, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain, gathers his disciples around him, and he tells them, he casts a vision for the good life. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Poor? Mourning? Meekness? Hunger? Thirst? That, that's the good life? And Jesus says, yes. As we look at Paul's example in Acts 21, we are looking at an example of someone living the good life. Now, first pass, we just read this passage. It might, we might have read this passage and you might have thought, I'm glad none of that will ever be true of me. <laughs> I would never want to emulate what we see in Paul. Yet, this is an example of Paul living the good life that Jesus purchased for him. Because what we're going to see is that the joy of following Jesus includes the joy of following his example of servanthood. And we're going to see two examples in Paul of the unexpected joys of following Jesus. First, the joy of using your freedom to serve others. And second, the joy of being misunderstood for Jesus. The joy of using your freedom to serve others and the joy of being misunderstood for Jesus. First of all, the joy of using your freedom to serve others. So Paul had been driven by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the day after, he goes to meet with uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And there were other elders as well of, of the church in Jerusalem gathered there. And as he gathers, Paul tells all these elders about all the things that God had done among the Gentiles and all of his missionary journeys all throughout the world. And they hear this and, and they praise God for all these Gentiles who have believed the gospel. But they also raise a concern about the Jews who have believed the gospel. Uh, they start describing their concern about halfway through verse 20. Look at that again. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Uh, they are zealous for the law, and they have been 
told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Uh, So ever since Pentecost, there were tons of Jews, thousands of Jews that had been saved in Jerusalem. Uh, And many of these Jews continued to follow their Jewish customs. They were zealous for the law, James says. Now, we should understand here that when he says that they were zealous for the law following these things, uh, that he's not talking about them keeping the law in order to be justified, but that they were keeping these customs as a form of, of personal spirituality, a way of worshiping this God who has saved them. Uh, Nevertheless, they're zealous for the law, but there was this rumor that was being spread about Paul among the various Jews there in Jerusalem. Someone told them that Paul was going around teaching Jewish believers to forsake the law, forbidding them from circumcising their children, forbidding them from following the customs that are outlined in the law. And we've got to acknowledge these rumors, we've already seen, these rumors are not true. Salvation, as Paul preached it, yes, salvation was apart from the law. So it's not hard to see how they arrived at this conclusion. Uh, Paul was teaching, you do not have to keep the law to be saved. And Paul was teaching that Christ sets us free from the law. And Paul even was at times living outside of the law. But Paul never insisted that it was necessary to abandon Jewish customs. And we've seen this as recently as Acts 20, where we saw Paul observing the Jewish feasts. Uh, he was free to continue to do that in Christ if he wanted to, and he did. He, he did it himself. So we have to realize these are False rumors being spread about Paul. Uh, And it seems that the elders in Jerusalem understood that these were false rumors. um, And so they wanted to clear up the confusion. So they had a plan that they offered to Paul in verses 23 and 24. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So there was these four men there in Jerusalem who had uh, apparently taken a a, a Nazarite vow. You can look at Numbers chapter 6 for the details on that, but a Nazarite vow, that word Nazarite means consecration. It was a vow of of dedication to the Lord. And as part of that vow, those who took those vows would abstain from certain practices for a period of time. They would abstain from uh, drinking uh, alcohol for a period of time. They would abstain from cutting their hair for a period of time. And then at the end of that vow, to mark the end, They would shave their head and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, so what the elders were then suggesting that Paul would do is that you go with these four men for the end of their vow. You go with them, participate in this ritual of them shaving their heads, offering the sacrifice, 
Pay for all of, the ex- all of their expenses so that people looking at you will see, okay, he's not anti-Jewish, he's not anti-law, he's not uh, anti-Jewish you know, customs and all these things. Uh, he is acknowledging that there is freedom to, to do these things. Uh, now, in order for Paul to go to the temple to participate with them, he would have to go through a seven-day uh, ceremonial purification process and then go. So that's what they have in mind as they tell him to be purified. But, but ultimately, the, the goal is that Paul would show his fellow Jews he's not against the law, he's not against the customs, that he even practices these things himself at times. Now, the elders, even as they are proposing this plan to Paul, they offer a clarification um, that they are not trying to say that all Christians must keep the law. Uh, so they talk about the Gentiles, and they, they, they make it clear this is purely about communicating to the Jews you're free to observe the law. It's not about saying that all Christians had to keep the law. Look at verse 25 again. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So this is that letter that the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 wrote and sent to the Gentile believers who were coming to faith in Christ at that time. Uh, They determined that it was not necessary to impose the law on Gentiles. Uh, These four practices that they mentioned to abstain from uh, were because uh, these were uh, practices associated with uh, uh, with pagan worship, um, and so they were asking the Gentiles to abstain from these things to make sure that they uh, were living in such a way that was set apart from the worldly religions around them, but by no means did they impose keeping the whole law on these Gentile believers. And so as the elders are reminding Paul of this decision that they came to, they're saying, hey, we, we're not going back on what we said in that letter. We're, we're still in agreement here about Gentiles. They were still committed to protecting the Gentile believers' freedom not to observe the law. They were simply asking Paul to help them affirm the Jewish believers' freedom to observe the law if they wanted to. And then in verse 26, we see Paul was glad to comply with this. Verse 26, then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul says, yes, I'll do that. He goes with them, goes to the temple. He lets them know he's beginning the seven-day purification process and that in seven days he'll come back, bring them with him, offer these sacrifices, participate with them in the, the fulfillment of their vows. So as we look at what Paul does in this scenario, how he responds, you, you might have expected, if, if you're reading verses 18 through 25, say, you come to the end of the elders pitching this idea to Paul, and verse 26 When Paul responds, you might think, okay, here's where Paul is like, no, 
I am free in Christ. I'm free from the law. I'm not going to live like that anymore. Let me tell you about the gospel that's free from works of the law. And the truth of the matter is, Paul was free not to observe the law. Galatians 2.19, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law. So Paul could have said, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm free. If they misunderstand me, that's their problem. My heart was in the right place. I don't have to do anything to prove anything. I've got a clean conscience. But that's not how Paul responds. Why? Because Paul understood that the freedom that Christ gives, he gives for a purpose. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul was free in Christ to not observe the law or to observe the law. But he understood that Christ gave that freedom not so he could serve himself and do whatever he wanted to do. God gave him that freedom so that he could use that freedom to love neighbor. Paul chose to use his freedom to serve these Jewish brothers in Jerusalem and to maintain the unity within the body of Christ. He chose to use his freedom for the purpose of that Jesus gave him that freedom. You know, no one has ever been as free as Jesus was. We're talking about the eternal God, the creator, the one who is in no way limited. He's not limited by what he's able to do. He has all power. He's not limited by what he's able to know. He has all knowledge. No one has ever been as free as Jesus. No one's ever had that much freedom. Yet, that Lord used his infinite freedom to serve you and me. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and look at verse 14. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, washed the feet of his disciples 
And after he did that, he said in verse 14 of John 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, our master, became a servant to purchase your freedom and my freedom. And in doing so, he set us an example of what we are to do then with that freedom. And it's not to use it as an opportunity for the flesh to serve ourselves. It's to use it as an opportunity to love like he loved. So, leads to an obvious question. Are you using your freedom as an opportunity to serve yourself? Or are you using your freedom as an opportunity to serve others? When you think of your rights, your freedoms that you have, what's your first impulse? What comes to mind first? How those things can benefit you? How to fight for those things, protect those things at all costs? Or do you think about how you can benefit others with these rights and freedoms that you have? Do you even consider how you can give up your freedom to love neighbor? There are a lot of freedoms that we have in Christ. All of them are to be used to glorify him and to love neighbor. Um, Friday, I was, uh, Friday afternoon, I was struggling to get other things out of the way so that I could focus on this sermon. And uh, finally was able to get some time, went to Starbucks, sat down, was, had, you know, finally carved out an opportunity to sit down and get some work done on this sermon. And, uh, and then Alyssa texted me, and she was not feeling well. The kids were uh, being extra, we'll say. It was getting close to supper time. She was feeling terrible and, and wasn't able to get it started. And kids were getting cranky and hungry. And she shares this with me. In that moment, I was free. Now, by the look of some of you husbands, you're saying to me, you were not free. <laughs> but follow me, follow me. I was free. And what I mean by that is this. She wasn't asking me to come home. I was free to make the decision that the best thing to do would be to stay there for a few more minutes, finish what I needed to do, and then go home and, and serve my family. I, there, I was free. There, there's no verse in the Bible that says you must 
leave Starbucks and go home. There's no uh, sin in the Bible I was committing by, by breaking, you know, thou shalt go home immediately, okay? There, I was free. And Sunday was coming. And I was feeling the pressure. And I wanted to use my freedom to get the work done that I wanted to do. I wanted to use my freedom to serve myself to write a sermon about how you should use your freedom to serve others. So you can imagine how well that was about to go. That's how I wanted to use my freedom. That's not how Jesus used his freedom. Jesus used his freedom to serve me. To serve you. And he calls us to do the same. To take our freedom and ask the question, not how is this an opportunity for me, but to ask the question, how is this an opportunity to serve and love like Jesus loved? I, I went home, okay? I went home. Some of you are wondering, like, so what did you, I, I went home. It's not, uh, it's not the most effective sermon prep uh, technique to actively work against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's not productive. So, anyway. The joy of following Jesus includes the joy of using our freedom to serve others, and it involves the joy of being misunderstood for Jesus. The joy of being misunderstood for Jesus. So in verse 27... Uh, Paul comes to the end of his purification process that he needed in order to be a part of this ritual. He goes to the temple with these four men that had taken this vow. And when he comes to the temple, there's trouble. Look at verses 27 to 29 again. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul's there at the temple, and also at the temple are some Jews from Asia, uh, Asia Minor. Uh, that was the region where uh, Ephesus uh, was and probably they were Jews from Ephesus because Trophimus, who is mentioned here, was an Ephesian. They probably knew that he was from Ephesus. So these Jews stir up the crowd, they grab Paul, and they make two accusations. The first accusation is that he was teaching against the Jewish people, the law, and the temple. Now we've already seen that this was not what he was teaching. But also just consider how ironic this is, that this would be what they accuse him of at this moment. He is at the temple to prove that he's not anti-Jewish. <laughs> he's at the temple participating in customs according to the law. He's at the temple to purify himself out of respect for the temple. 
and yet they accuse him of teaching against the Jews and against the law and against the temple. Well, and then the second accusation they bring against him is that he had brought Gentiles into the temple. So at the temple, there was an outer court that Gentiles were permitted to come into, uh, but they couldn't go any further in than that point. There was a, an inner court, and if they were to cross the barrier into that inner court, it was actually punishable by death. So it would have been against the law for Paul to bring Gentiles into that inner court where he would have gone into, but Paul hadn't done this. And the text makes that clear. They just saw earlier in the week, Paul was going around town with Trophimus and other Gentiles, and they assumed that he was in the temple with them and had brought them in. So they make these two accusations that are obviously false. But even the accusations themselves were enough to cause a great commotion. See that in verse 30. All the city was stirred up, and all the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Well, so this city is in turmoil. Paul is being beaten. Uh, There's violence. There is chaos. And the news about what was happening in the city gets to uh, the, the Tribune, who's a Roman official part of the military. He led a, a cohort of uh, upwards of a thousand soldiers, and they were stationed very close to the temple grounds. And so it was easy for the news to get to them and easy for them to respond when they heard about this. Look at verses 31 and 32. And as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Uh, So in God's kind providence, uh, the tribune and the centurions and all the soldiers he brought came just in time. The Jews see them coming, hands off, stop beating Paul. Uh, God's kind providence saving Paul's life because they were trying to kill him, if at all possible. Again, what they claimed that he had done was punishable by death. But the tribune comes on the scene and he takes charge of the situation. Verse 33 Uh, He came up and arrested Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Uh, So so, uh, obviously the, the, the tribune comes, and he can tell who is at the center of this commotion, who is being accused. And so he, he clears everyone away. He, he has Paul arrested and bound in two chains. And in that moment, the prophecy of Agabus from back in chapter 21, verse 11, is fulfilled. Just as the Holy Spirit said through him, Paul was indeed bound when he got to Jerusalem. Uh, but when the tribune tries to get the story straight on why this guy is 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 causing such a commotion he couldn't get the story straight there's all this chaos confusion shouting and so he he takes him to the barracks so that he can get alone with paul and 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 question him privately but even getting him to the barracks outside of the crowd proved difficult Uh, look at verse 35 and when he came to the steps 
uh, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Uh, So they're trying to get Paul into the barracks, and they had to physically lift him because the crowd was so violent and so uh, pressing in on them. Uh, As Paul was carried away, the crowd shouts, away with him. And the sense of that is, uh, take him away and put him to death. Let him have what is coming to him. Uh, If you flip ahead to Acts 22, 22, you'll see that this is uh, what they intend. Uh, Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. This is what they think of Paul. And we'll see what happens once the Tribune takes Paul into the barracks. We'll see what happens next week. So stay tuned. For now, I want us to look and consider what Luke is doing here. Luke is painting a picture of how Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. He doesn't come right out and say it, but in the way he tells the story, Luke is communicating clearly that Paul is following in the footsteps of his master, Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, the turning point of that Gospel is when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem knowing that suffering was awaiting him. Here, in the section of Acts that we've been in, the turning point that leads to everything else is Paul setting his face to go to Jerusalem knowing suffering was awaiting him. The Gospel of Luke records how the Jews falsely accused Jesus. Now here in Acts, the Jews are falsely accusing Paul. Jesus was handed over to the Romans. Paul was handed over to the Romans. And furthermore, even in the way Luke crafts these two books, he intentionally is drawing a parallel. So in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke gets to the end of the Gospel, he spends a considerable amount of time telling the story of Jesus before the different governing officials, the lengthy trials before both Jewish and Roman officials. And now, where we're going in the book of Acts, the end of this book, Luke is spending a considerable amount of time at the end of this book recording Paul's lengthy trials as he's brought before Jewish and Roman officials. There's even a parallel in our passage here about what the crowds say. So again, verse 36, the crowds cry out, away with him. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, in, verse, in uh, chapter 23, verse 18, Luke recorded how Pilate brought Jesus before the crowds, and all the crowds shouted together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas. Paul was following in Jesus' footsteps. He was following in the footsteps of a suffering Messiah. He was following in the footsteps of the Lord who bore the cross. And in this particular section, he's 
following Jesus, particularly in that Jesus was misunderstood. He's following in Jesus' footsteps by being misunderstood. So I read earlier from Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. The last one in Matthew 5, 11 and 12 is this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said the good life includes the joy of being misunderstood for Jesus. Why was Paul arrested? Well, they accused him of teaching against the Jews and the law. Was he doing this? No. The reason why he, there was even grounds to, to come up with that accusation is because he was just trying to preach the gospel of grace. They accused him of defiling the temple. Was he actually doing this? No, the opposite. But what was the grounds that they were able to twist to get there? It was because he was regularly found associating with Gentiles outside of the temple. So why was Paul arrested? Because he was preaching like Jesus preached, and he was loving people like Jesus loved people, and he was misunderstood for it. Following Jesus means being misunderstood for Jesus. Do you ever hesitate to obey Christ? Hesitate to do what would be a step of following Jesus because you're afraid you're going to be misunderstood? I would follow Jesus by doing whatever, doing blank. But I don't want people to think that I'm you know, being self-righteous and holier than thou. I, I would follow Jesus, but I don't want people to think that I'm just being a stick in the mud. Or I would follow Jesus by doing this, but I don't want people to get the wrong idea and think that a Christian can't also be cool. I would follow Jesus by saying this or doing this, but I, I don't want people to think that I'm not intelligent. The truth is, when we follow Jesus, we are opening ourselves up to being misunderstood. Paul did everything possible to not be misunderstood. All he was doing was focusing on Jesus, on doing the right thing, on being faithful. And even as he was trying to dot every I and cross every T, he was misunderstood. Following Jesus means being misunderstood for Jesus. Now, one of the things that's really interesting and instructive as we look at this section from verse 18 through 36 is the balance in this text as it relates to how we should think about what other people think of us. Okay, So if I ask you the question, should you care about what other people think about you? Answer that question just 
the quietness of your own heart? Should you care about what other people think about you? If you answered yes, you're right and you're wrong. If you answered no, you're also right and you're also wrong. Because on the one hand, Paul was going to participate in this vow because of what the Jewish believers would think of him. I mean, that was the whole point. So that they would know, where is it? Verse 24, thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. He was doing this to be seen by them so that he would be able to, uh, to squash the rumors that were being spread about him. So he went because he cared about what these Jewish believers thought of him. On the other hand, again, no matter how faithful Paul was, he couldn't escape being misunderstood. And at a certain point, you have to just say, I'm trusting in Jesus, and maybe people are going to misunderstand me. Jesus says, rejoice when that happens. So, should we care about what people think about us? Yes and no. (laughs) Okay, well, how do I walk that tightrope? All for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul comes back to over and over and over again. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He tells the Corinthians, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. I do all for the sake of the gospel. Again in Galatians, Paul says, the whole law can be summed up in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. If that is our focus, then sometimes, yes, we will care about what other people think about us. And we will actually work in order to change what they think about us for the sake of the gospel, for love of neighbor. Sometimes, having that focus means we're going to be misunderstood. And we need to accept that and rejoice in the fact that people revile us and say all sorts of evil things about us falsely. Why? Because it's all for the sake of the gospel. Love neighbor as ourselves. So the good life, as Jesus defines it, is not always what we would think of as the good life. The joy of following Jesus includes the joy of following in his humble servanthood. Includes the joy of using your freedom to serve others. The joy of even being misunderstood for Jesus. But it is the good life. Because it is the life of knowing and following Jesus. It's a life in his presence. It's a life. Psalmist describes in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even as we follow a Lord who bore a cross and who calls us to take up our cross and follow him, we do so in the joy of his presence and the joy of the good life that he leads us in. Let's pray together. Father, 
I ask that you would change our definition of the good life and conform it to your definition. Lord, I pray that we would learn and know the joy of following Jesus even when it means giving up that which we would like to cling to, even when it means accepting the loss of something we would like to gain. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the joy the joy that Jesus experienced as he endured the cross with the joy set before him. Lord, we love you and praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.